Before we open God's word, let's bow our hearts in a word of prayer. Oh Lord, where else can we turn? You are the one who truly loves us. You're the one who truly knows us and still loves us. You know us, you love us, and you have the power to sustain us, to change us, not only our circumstances, but we ourselves into the very image of your Son. Father, that's what we long for. We pray that your word this morning could could be a light that would dispel the darkness inside of our hearts, the darkness of doubts and discouragement and confusion and whatever else Satan is putting there to, to keep us from fully embracing the hope and the truth and the love that you're shining. Lord, we pray this morning that your spirit could work powerfully in spite of the weaknesses of your servant, Lord, that your, you would be glorified and you would work freely and unhindered. And this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. With the help of the Lord, I'd like to turn to the uh, first epistle of the Apostle John, chapter 3. First John, chapter 3. Behold, behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. Whoso committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. And ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Little children, Let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. And he that committeth sin is of the devil. For the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. For a seed seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. In this, the children of God are manifest and the children of devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. For this is the message that ye heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the, that wicked one, and slew his brother. Wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. 
Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Hereby we know that we are of the truth, and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence toward God. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him, because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. He that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, and he in him. And hereby we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he hath given us. I've read the entire chapter. Behold! The word uses as powerful, attention-grabbing, please stop, open your eyes, look, listen, see, something special is happening here. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. Don't gloss over this. Don't skip over it in your rush to just get on to the next verse, to get through this sermon, to get on to the next event of the day and the next day of the week. Something's going on here and you might miss it. Stop. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. This is something that we have a hard time getting our minds around. There is a Heavenly Father. You are not accidents. You are not some competing, striving, uh, puny people fighting over temporal things that don't matter here on this earth, over stuff, over position, over prestige, over... No, you have a Father. And the Father loves you. In fact, He does 
this incredible thing that he calls you. He opens him up, self up, and calls you his son. And when you cross into that relationship, it's, it's, you're crossing a line. It's going to have consequences. It's going to mean you're no longer a son of this world. It means you're going to have to sacrifice some friendships, some relationships, because the world is not going to know you anymore. It's not going to relate to you. It's not going to connect with you. It's going to say, you're strange, you're different, you're weird. We don't want to hang around with you. You make me uncomfortable. You're light. We're darkness. And we don't want to see what you're showing us. But that price is beyond worth it because you have a father. Now, that concept is totally misunderstood today. Fathers that are committed to their children, that don't walk away and abandon them, that, that are more than just biological beginnings, but that are consistent presences that are willing to, to come alongside, to, to deal with the kickings and rebellings and yet provide firm guidance, protection, leadership, provision and vision and, and help that son and daughter become what they all they can be. Now, this father didn't have to do that. He opened himself up to, to people who had already spit in his face, had already turned his back on them countless times. And he becomes vulnerable. Let's think about that when God asks us to love. When God asks us to care. Because whenever you choose to care, you choose to make yourself vulnerable to pain. And maybe that's why people walk around in these little cubicles of isolation. You know, I don't care. It's just about me. Because then I'm safe and no, nothing can hurt me. We can have our sunglasses on. We can have our cool mask on. We can have our impassive. And, and we can keep ourselves from feeling and hurting. But that's not God. That's not your heavenly Father. He opened His arms wide on the cross and said, I welcome you and you to become my daughter, my son. Even though I know you're going to hurt me, I take you and I claim you and I stake my reputation, I stake my glory on you and your decisions. And I take you as my son, as my own. Now there's a progression here. And I welcome you. Please don't close your Bibles and think, I have something to say to you. I have nothing to say to you. I am no one. It is the word of God. Open it. Read it with me. It speaks to us. It's the living word of God. It has the authority. The word of God continues to say, Please, open in the Word. Read it with me. Beloved, there's a progression here. You are the sons of God, but you're not finished. 
God's not finished with you yet. It doth not yet appear what we shall be. When we have children and they're born into this world, they're, they're, they're tiny, they're tiny little red-faced, wrinkled prunes, depending how many pounds they are. We had different ones. And, you know, squalling and helpless. It, that's not the end product. This is a beginning. It's got potential. And you see the, the hearts of the mother and the father just go out to this helpless child. They, they don't know what this child can, they, they have hopes. They have dreams, a, a beautiful young woman, a strong man, someone who's going to have a positive impact on this world. Someone who's going to make them grateful and thankful to have this child course along the way they know there's going to be heartaches there's going to be pain but there is this potential this beautiful potential in each young innocent child but we don't know we don't yet see that full-grown potential we just see the little baby and you and I we are sons of God but we are not there yet. We are not fully developed. We have not achieved what God is trying to do. It doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, when Jesus comes back, as we were talking about, that even so come Lord Jesus last night, that when He comes back, then we shall be like Him. That's the goal. That's the potential. That's what God wants for each son and daughter of His, to be like Him. Because we're going to see him as he is. There's a clue here. How do we get to be like him? The more we see him, the more we dwell in him, the more we know him, the more he changes us. And on that final day when we shall see him face to face, then we will finally be also completely like him. The more distance there is between us and Him, the less time we spend focusing on who He is and the less time we spend in His presence, the less power there is for us to be transformed into being our potential, into being what He created us to be. But on that day, we will know Him completely. We will see Him without barrier and we will be like Him. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. I remember one day, Brother Alan and I, we went for a visit. We had a sister in our congregation. She, she had gone through a very, a lot of difficulties in her life, in her marriage. And it seems that people who go through problems uh, they either get bitter or they get better. And, and this sister to me was a real inspiration of someone who chose to be better rather than bitter, even though she had so many difficulties in her life. And so as we went to visit her and we thought that, you know, you know, in, in our, you know, 
we, we were y- young men and thought we could be a blessing and, and bring, you know, something from the Word of God to encourage her. And as, as we opened the Word of God, and we read this chapter together, and we got to this verse, the third verse, and she stopped there. And that was enough for her. This verse spoke to her. This verse challenged her. This verse had meaning and application. Here's what God wants me to do. I have a hope. One day, I want to be that precious daughter that's like Jesus, that precious son who's like Jesus, but I know I'm not. I know there's things I need to get rid of in my life. I need to purify. I need to separate. God is a God of distinctions. You read that first chapter in Genesis, and God's always separating. He's separating the the dry land from the water, the 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 water above from below, and he's he's making distinctions. He's bringing order to the chaos that was swirling below, and he wants to bring distinctions. And he's teaching the Israelites separate the unclean from the unclean, the holy from the unholy, and he wants to do that in your and my life. He wants to separate the things that shouldn't be there, the things that are distorting and blocking the image of the Jesus Christ in you from being manifest. He wants to separate what shouldn't be there. And he wants you to participate. He wants you to open your heart and say, Lord, I have that hope. I want to be like you. And anything that gets in the way, that distorts that image, I'm willing to put it aside. Because that's my hope. It's My hope is not to, to be somebody in this planet, to be someone that's looked up to and envied and have stuff and, 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 and be known. My goal is to be like your son. And I'm not going to be patient with anything in the way. And then we get into detail. Whosoever committeth sin, verse 4, transgresses the law. Sin is the transgression of the law. But you know that Jesus was manifested. God himself came into this planet for a goal. In this case, the goal was to take away your sin. You have sin. You have things that totally, you've got this precious baby and that parent has hopes and dreams for this child and this child grows up and this child become something completely different from the hopes and dreams of our Heavenly Father. This child wants to rebel, to cause pain and hurt and anger. And, 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 and God has a plan. He has a law. He has a way things work that work to, to bring blessing to your life and the lives around you. And when you break that law, You're not like, okay, I'm getting away with things and I can thumb my nose at authority. No, you're, when you're breaking the law, it's breaking you. You're breaking, when, when, when you say, you know, I, I can't thumb my nose at Toyota and say, nah, 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 I got away with not changing my oil for another 5,000 kilometers. I'm not getting anything by breaking the laws that are, are the, that are put in the maintenance manual. It's breaking my car. And when you break God's commandments and when you think that you can get away with, with, with the hatred and the, and, and the anger and, and the deceit and, and, and the, the dishonesty and all the stuff that you're thinking, you know, I'm, I'm being more powerful. I'm free from God's laws. You're just throwing sand in your engine. You're just throwing water in the gasoline tank. You're just making this thing break down. 
when you bring that sin into your life. And Jesus came because he had compassion. He saw this hurting world. You can see it when he was on this planet. And he looks around and he, and his heart just goes out. He sees sheep without a shepherd, people who are wandering, lost and hurting. He says, you know, I, Pray the Lord of the harvest that he would send more laborers. There's just so many hurting people here that think they're getting away with breaking God's laws and are being broken in the process. And you know, verse 6, whosoever, if you're still reading with me, we're at verse 6, whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. And whoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Now here's a very strong statement. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. And he that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Your life doesn't lie. You can put on a good face. You can say a lot of things. But the fruit tells us what kind of tree it is. And we know whether you're abiding in him, whether you are you are dwelling, you are in the presence of God, you are spending time like Mary at his feet. Not even being Martha is good enough. Spending time in the kitchen serving God. But no, you need to be Mary at his feet. And you need to sit and let him change you though your heart changes. And then the power of sin is broken. That's why he came in the world. He came, the son of God, with God himself, his character was made plain. Because we were so lost and confused by all the messages around us that we needed to see the express image of God as Hebrews calls it, where we can see God himself in a, in a way that we can, can, can understand. It's not blinding. It's not the, the trumpet and, and the burning fire on top of the, the mountain that, that no one can approach to and that anyone sees will, will die. We see Jesus coming with compassion on his face and we see who God is in a way we can understand and we can understand the difference between who he is and who we are and what real righteousness looks like as opposed to this pharisaical righteousness that was the, the religious people were portraying. And we see that he not only came and showed us what it really should look like, he destroyed the works of the devil. The devil had a plan too. His plan, he speaks of his own, it's, it's lies and deceit. And he poisoned from the very beginning our first fathers and he planned to get people focused on power and control and, 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 and you need, you don't need God. You can be independent of God and you are safer when, when you don't trust anybody, when you're isolated. And he, he had all kinds of lies that different ones, maybe even lies that contradict each other. You're so hopeless. God would never love you. You just, wallow in your pity and you're so perfect you don't need to change it doesn't matter if those lies contradict each other lies are contradictions but he's using those lies and satan comes and exposes the lies and he breaks the power and he takes but that 
That's not enough. It's not enough for the light to show that you're in shackles. It's not enough for the light to show that you're dirty. That's a painful thing to admit, to humble yourself. But even once you humble yourself and say, yes, I am dirty. I am a captive. I am in need. You still need to be set free. And there's a penalty to pay for the transgression, for the things you've done. And Jesus came to break and destroy the works of the devil. And he took it on himself. And he took the penalty. Verse 9, Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for a sin his seed remaineth in him. He cannot sin because he's born of God. This is a mystery. This is this isn't a self-help group. This isn't 12 steps to becoming Christian. This isn't, here's the pattern and the program. First, you've got to do this, and then you've got to do this, and, and once you've done this, then, you, you know, this is not something you do. You become the child of God because God's seed is in you, because God is the one who, who creates a new life in an organic way, not a mechanic way. It's as you stare in that face of God, as you understand who He is, and as you humble yourself, and as you dwell in His presence and sit at His feet, that His character is manifesting life through His power, not your own. And it shows up. The wheat and the tares show up. The children of God are made plain or manifest, and the children of the devil... One thing we've discussed, your righteousness, your acts, what comes out of your heart in terms of the words and actions. Whoever doeth not not righteousness is not of God. And then the Apostle John adds another thing. He gets specific to one particular commandment. Because when we think about righteousness, we think about, okay, you know, people who who lie, who cheat, who steal, who, 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 who do these things that, you know, are against the law. But John says, no, 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 do you remember? Jesus says, a new commandment I give unto you. A new commandment that you love one another. And on these things, loving God with all your heart, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor self, on these things all the law and prophets rest. And so he gets specific. It's whoever doeth not righteous, neither he that loveth not his brother. We're on verse 10 if you're following. Because this is the word of God. This is not me. God is giving you a test to see, are you a child of the devil or a child of God? If you want to know if you're a child of the devil or the child of God, you can read this verse. He's asking you, do you love your brother? That's how you can tell. And to God, that's serious. This is his commandment. It wasn't an option. Now, if you want to be a good Christian, you should love your brother. If you want to be in like that top 20%, if you want to have an extra jewel in your crown, love your brother. No. He said... 
You're either, if you're a child of God, you're not a child of God if you don't love your brother. You're a child of the devil if you don't love your brother. In fact, he goes on to say, you're a murderer if you don't love your brother. Let's read it together. These are not my words. But this is the message you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, the devil. This is where the child of the devil comes in. And what did Cain do? He killed his brother. And why did he kill his brother? Because his own works were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do you, do you understand what, what God is explaining here? Why is there anger and hatred and murder? Where did it come from? In that very first instance, oh, he was jealous. Oh, he wanted something. Oh, he had something to gain. No, 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 no. He was exposed and he didn't like it. Cain was exposed. His heart was exposed. And he had to silence the messenger. He had to silence the contrast. It was uncomfortable. The light was shining from his brother. His brother had a relationship with God. His brother was pleasing God. And he wasn't. And he couldn't bear the humiliation, the exposure of his own heart. And to silence it, he killed his brother. Why is there anger and hatred among us? Oh, it's because you know what that person did to me? Do you know how that person disrespected me? Do you know what that person said behind my back? Do you know what that person did that really was, was so wrong? No, no, no. The Bible's saying that what's going on isn't about what that other person did. That's not why we have a problem with other people. There's something wrong in our own hearts that we got to look at first when we don't love our brother. Because loving our brother isn't, well, of course I love people that are lovely. Of course I love the good people, the ones that are I can relate to, the ones that are nice to me. But those people, the ones that are different, the ones that have hurt me, the ones, no, come on, that's their fault. Look what they did. You can't expect me to love them. You know, this isn't optional. This isn't, you know, for the saint circle. This is a question of you being a child of God or a child of the devil. And we need to look in our hearts, and if we don't love our brothers, we better do something about it. And if we better look in our hearts and say, you know, is this really about me? I know it happens to me. I know recently I had a confess to my son yesterday. You know, I was angry because it was really about me. I took it out on you. But I was angry with myself. And I have to ask your forgiveness. I mean, sure, you did something wrong, but my reaction was fueled by my own self-anger. And you too, you need to examine your hearts how much of my anger is really not about the other person, it's about me. And how much is it about me not humbling myself and spending time in God's presence and letting Him break the works of the devil 
in my life. The thoughts, the disunity, those are devilish works. God hates those that sow discord among the brethren. It's in his top six hate list in Proverbs. You can read it. And those are the works of the devil that God wants to break, and he breaks it in your heart. When you are exposed and you choose to humble yourself and say, no, 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 it's his fault. No, 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 it was, it was the woman. She gave it to me. No, 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 it was the serpent deceived me. No, no, it's Abel's fault. He's such a goody two-shoes, he makes me look bad. No, we need to look at our own heart. Say, I need your forgiveness, Lord. You've come. You were manifest in the world to break the worlds, the, the, the works of the devil. Break them in my heart. Free me. Help me to be in the image of your son. Verse 13 says, now, now that you understand why Cain killed Abel, don't be surprised. The world hates you. They're going to hate you. You've crossed that line. You're not thinking like they are. You're not following the unspoken rules about not saying anything about what's wrong. You're shining light. That's against the rules. You know we have a rule here in this world that you're not allowed to say anything is wrong. That makes people feel bad. And if you make people feel bad, that might get angry. And you make them angry, they might do something to hurt you. That's not new. It happened with Cain and Abel. So, should we be quiet? Should we follow these unspoken rules? Is that the purpose for which we are here? I have to ask myself first. The scripture says that if I'm ashamed of his son before men, he'll be ashamed of me before the father. Yes, if you speak up about the truth, you might lose your head. John the Baptist did. He told King Agrippa, it was not right for you to have your brother's wife. If you speak the truth, you might end up alone. Yeah, alone on the Isle of Patmos. Like John the Apostle, who told the king that, hey, you shouldn't be giving this idol glory for, for your victories in battle. There's only one who's in control. Yeah, if you give God and you expose sin, people aren't going to like you. You're not going to be, you know, Mr. Popular or Mrs. Popular. You're not going to win popularity contests. But that's okay. Because you decided when you crossed that line and you said, I want to be a child of God rather than a child of the devil, you said, it's okay if the world hates me. Because... What does the world's love do for me anyways? How safe is it to be in the company of murderers? How safe is it to be God in God's hand? To know that he's in control. I mean, Jesus is telling the truth there. He's telling the truth in his own hometown. You know, no prophet is without honor except in his own hometown. 
For me, it's within my own home where I often get the most disrespect. And when he speaks the truth, they take him and they put him on the cliff and they want to throw him over to, over the cliff. He knew. He knew these people. He knew what they were going to react. Did that stop him from telling the truth? He knew when he came down here to manifest who God is and to break our sin and to sacrifice himself for us, he knew that he'd be rejected. He knew that I would reject him, that you would reject him. He did it anyways. The world's going to hate you, and that's okay. In fact, if they do, you kind of know you're on the right track. Don't let it bother you. Because just like with Jesus, they couldn't throw him over the cliff. His time was not yet come. The anger of the people who oppose you because the exposure said, it's not in control. God's in control. They can't touch you when you're God's son. You will be able to walk through their midst until it's God's time and God thinks you will glorify him more by by suffering for his name. God's in control and it's they don't ha- they can't touch you if God doesn't think it's going to achieve a greater purpose. Verse 14 reinforces this very strong point. We know. And all the philosophers, well, how do we know that we know? And, and you know, how do I know I'm real? And all this kind of stuff. No, no, no. There's things you can know. Oh, how do I know what God thinks of me? How do I know if I'm right? No, no. Here's, here's how you can know. The Bible says you can know something. Let's read this together. We know that we have passed from death unto life. Now, there's an important thing to know. Would you like to know that you're going to heaven? Would you like to know that you're no longer living under condemnation and you're no longer dead and and separated from God, but actually you're alive in your relationship with God and you have an eternal hope and glory with Him? Would you like to know that? Then how come you aren't reading this verse with me? Open your Bibles. It's in verse 14. Verse 14 says, We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. And the converse, just in case you think there's some kind of loophole that this is, he, he, he totally locks it shut. And if you don't, he that loveth not his brother abideth in death. If you love your brother, you've passed from death to life. If you don't love your brother, you're still where you started. Dead, separated from God, under condemnation. Kind of important. Kind of a single dividing line. Not an optional part of Christianity at all. That's why it's kind of important that we don't let that sneaky works of the devil creep in our hearts and try to get in there and tell us, oh, do you know what that person did? I can't forgive that person. He's got to say sorry to me first. I got to see him come crawling on his knees before. I got to see her 
change before I'm willing to forgive her. Oh, I'm in a position where I'm going to be judge and executor, and until they meet my criteria, I'm not going to forgive them. You really want to play that game? You really want to toy whether you've crossed the line from death into life, whether for some little slight that someone has shown you? Really? That makes sense. Come on. Let's grow up. We may be the children of God, but it's time not to be immature. It's time to grow up. There's a lot more at stake here than our personal pride. Seriously. Because we know what, what the Lord did for us. We know how He gave up His personal pride and came down here, the, the God who created the universe and was mocked, spit, and spit on and beaten, hung in shame and nakedness on a cross in agony, and we're worried about how our feelings are hurt. And we're willing to toy with our eternity over things like that. You might not like me because I'm telling the truth, but maybe I'm on the right track. Because it is a truth. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. That's a pretty strong statement. Is John going a little bit far here? You know, some people only want to stick with the words of Jesus. You know, these apostles, they're men. Well, no, no, what did Jesus say in his very core teachings on the Sermon on the Mount? Didn't he say the same thing? And when you, when you despise your brother, you're in danger of even hellfire. That hatred, anger, and murder are just a progression on a continuum, and you have murder in your heart when you harbor that ill will. And God sees that. He knows that you may not have acted on it. You may not have actually pulled the trigger or plunged the knife, put the poison in, but in your heart you want to. And God knows what's in our heart. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. Now, murder is serious. Murder is saying, God, you may have created this person. He may be in your image, have your eternal spirit on him, but I think I have the right to end his life here. I'm going I'm to play God. I'm going to take your role. I'm going to execute justice. Injustice, really. God says that's serious. You're crossing a line. In fact, murderers don't have eternal life abiding in him. When you have that in you, you are, you are definitely off the list. You cannot enter in the kingdom. Can you imagine what heaven would be like if we had people walking around that had murder in their hearts? Would it be heaven anymore? No. You're not going to get in there with that in your heart. You're going to have to leave it behind. 
You're going to have to leave that behind with your petty pride and all the motivation and you're trying to cover up all the accusations and, you know, leave it behind. You're not going to get through the eye of the needle carrying that kind of baggage. God's telling you. He takes it seriously. What you think of other people. Now, why is God making such a big deal about other people? I thought this is about a relationship with God. As long as I'm right with God, why does he care how I get along with other people? That's not so important. Well, let's read it together. If you're still reading with me, in verse 16, Hereby perceive we the love of God. Now, here's another thing you can know. You don't have to be a philosopher and wonder whether you're some kind of brain in a vent and whether you're really real. You can know some things. You can know whether you are on the way to heaven or hell, and you can know if God loves you. You can perceive it. You can see it. God has made it plain for everyone. How can you perceive it? We can perceive the love of God because... He laid down his life for us. We talked about that, didn't we? Jesus gave up the respect he deserved, the honor and glory and worship of all the angels in heaven, came down as a little crying baby in a filthy stable, went through life mocked and disrespected, executed in injustice. More than that, he didn't have to do that. And now we're looking at, at the God who sent him. And, and, you know, there's a story that, that, that people use to try to illustrate this, and, and it's a weak analogy. All analogies are. You know, about the trestle bridge, you probably know the one that I'm talking about where, where the father is in charge of a trestle bridge. You know, one of those ones that raises for the boats and lowers when the train goes over to allow the train to cross over the, the river safely. And the one day he, he brought his son with him. And the, the son uh, wandered away and was playing and, and got down in among the gears and just then the whistle blew and, and the train was coming and the father had this agonizing decision he had to make. There wasn't time. He couldn't go and get his son out of there and save the train. And so in great horrific agony, he had to push that lever and close that bridge and sacrificed the life of his son, who he loved dearly, and, and, and the train whistled by, oblivious to the sacrifice that was made so they wouldn't die that day in tragedy. Now, that's a, that's a weak analogy. It's imperfect in many ways. In some ways, it captures the horror of the father who has to decide, who has to give up something precious to him, It captures the callousness, perhaps, the casual way that you and I perceive that sacrifice. Unwittingly, uncaring that the God of the universe let his pure and innocent son, who is the least worthy, completely unworthy, only worthy of adoration, only pure, and allowing him to suffer in our place. 
And, and when we whistle by, uncaring, not seeing what was done for us, not perceiving the love, the sacrifice, and sacrifice is love. Love without sacrifice is love unproven, unshown. We know someone loves us when they make that choice to put our well-being above their own. And if you want to perceive the love of God, you look on the cross and you see Jesus who wasn't caught in the gears, who wasn't helpless there. He had the power of 10,000 angels and he could have been out of there any second. But as he hung between heaven and earth, as he hung in agony, dragging his ripped back up that rough cross for every breath, straining against the nerves that, that, that were being pinched in those days, every second of pure excruciating agony, he chose to stay. Not because he was caught in the gears, because he was caught by his love for you. That's the only thing that held him on the cross. Those nails couldn't hold him. Those soldiers fell down dead when one angel showed up. He had 10,000. The power of man was nothing. It was his love for you that held him in agony on the cross because he wanted to break the works of the devil in your life and free you. Don't whistle by on the train and don't realize the love of God for you. Now, that's half the verse. I raised a question and this has the answer. Normally, when you have this kind of structure, we see the love of God because he laid down his life for us and we, you would think, okay, since God laid down his life for us and he loved us, the natural conclusion to that sentence would be, and so we should love God. That's what you're expecting. That's the logical balance to this equation. God takes the first step. God opens himself and lovingly sacrifices his son for you. And you should respond to that kind of love like the bride to the bridegroom, like the, the rescued damsel in distress to the heroic savior. You should love him back. You're the responder. You're the, the, the female in this story of heroic rescue. But that's not what it says. That's not what it says. Are you reading with me? We're reading from verse 16. It says that, Hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. A little different. Why? Do you think God cares about how we love our brothers? Are you getting the picture that this matters to God? That this isn't about a vertical relationship? Because if we keep reading here, and, and we can uh, read in, in the next chapter, for example, explains it for us if we read in chapter 4, verse 12, which is why it's handy that you've got your Bibles open in front of you. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to also love one another. No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwells in us and his love is perfected. <clears throat> and as we keep going down to the end of the chapter, verse 19 is very parallel. We love him because he first loved us. If a man say 
I love God, and hateth his brother, he's a liar, not just a murderer. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. Yes, your response to the incredible love of God you can perceive and you have no excuse is that you should love him back. But how can you love the God you cannot see when you cannot perceive him? Well, we see that show up in how you love the brethren. Then we see what's in your heart. It comes out because righteousness comes out. Unrighteousness comes out. And the fruit is your attitude toward the people that God loves. I can't say, you know, I love my wife, but I really uh, don't care about, you know, uh, helping her out with the dishes or whatever, things she cares about. No, that, that's not important. My wife's going to say, well, you, you say with your words you love me, but you don't love the things that I care about. You're, you're, you're just... You're just words. And God doesn't want words. Jesus saw through words. In fact, that's what the next thing he's going to tell us here. But whoso hath this, verse 17 in chapter 3, we're reading together. Whoso hath this world's good and seeth his brother have need and shutteth up his bowels. That's an old English expression for your feelings of compassion. They kind of felt that that would reside in your in your in your um, in your intestines, because they're the ones who twist it up when you feel things, right? So they're they're using that as analogy. If you shut up your compassion from the person that you see has this world's need, your brother, how dwelleth the love of God in him? You can't use words, and then we see your actions don't add up. He goes on, my little children, let us not love in word neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. In deed and in truth. God knows. And it shows. And it matters. Have you looked on the cross? Do you perceive the love of God towards you? My dear brother, my dear sister, my dear friend, do you perceive how much God loves you? What's your response? Are you going to just take the evening train home, ignorant of the sacrifice that was made? Well, that's another imperfect thing in this analogy. Because with God, if you whistle on by and you don't care, the sacrifice doesn't work. It only applies if you respond. It's a greater sacrifice. Jesus sacrificed himself to you and he isn't even guaranteed your salvation. He makes that sacrifice and leaves it up to you whether that sacrifice is even going to accomplish its purpose. He jeopardizes everything and leaves it up to your choice. Can you imagine? That's what fathers do. 
Fathers love their children and they have no guarantees. No guarantees. And your heavenly father loves you. He loved you without strings attached. He loved you and leaves it up to you to respond. And we'll see how you respond. Whether we're going to hold on to hurts, hold on to anger, hold on to resentment, or whether we're going to love one another. See people as God sees them. Love them because God loves them. Respond to God because he commands us. We have every reason, and it shows up in what we do. And here's another thing we can know, this whole epistemology thing about how can we know that we know. Verse 19 says, here's another thing you can know. You can know that you're of the truth, and you can assure your hearts before him. kind of goes back to the first thing you can know. You can know what side of the line you're on whether you're on death or life. And you can calm your hearts. You can assure your hearts. You don't have to go through life like the Muslims in eternal insecurity. I hope my good works are enough. God's the judge. May he be merciful, though he has no obligation or or basis on which to be merciful to me. No, no, no. God says you can know Your heart can be settled. You can have peace. You can know where you're going. You can have that joy and assurance that you are right with God. You can know that you're in tune with reality, truth being, connecting with what's really real, that this isn't just some mind game. This isn't like... I'm going to meditate until empty my mind until I get rid of my fears and insecurities and now I've tricked myself into thinking I'm, I'm in a good place. No, no, no. This is real. You can know you are really crossed from death to life. You are really having the Spirit of God in you because it's the Spirit of God that enables you to love. It's His seed inside of you that You are born again in that new creation inside of you. I experienced it. I remember clearly saying, where did this come from? This is not me. I am not choosing to love this complete stranger. This is not me. This is God in me. And God can be in you. And you can have that kind of assurance in your heart. And brother and sister, if if, if you're losing that assurance, if, if it's not clear, well, then let's go back here. Let's assure hearts. Let's follow his commandments. Let's do those things that please him. Let's believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandments. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. If you want that assurance, you just open your heart. Do the scary thing. Love people that may not love you back. Risk like God risks. You're not safer or more secure when you're isolated and you guard that heart behind those walls. You're isolated, all right? The seed that has the power to bring life is kept on the shelf and it dries and shrivels. And Jesus said in John 12, when the Greeks came and they're saying, you know, why are you here? He said, you know, unless the seed falls in the ground and dies, 
can't bring forth fruit. If you want assurance, you've got to let go control. It's totally contrary, totally opposite to this world thinks. This world says, if you want to be safe, take control. You be the one in control. You make sure that no one can do anything to you. In the process of that fear, you become isolated and insecure as you're aware of every threat that threatens your dominion because you're not God and you can't control everything. Or you can surrender control, surrender your heart, open it up, even though this is the thing you've been afraid of, loving, caring, being hurt, and trust the God who is in control. He will love through you. He will heal you. And you will be safe. No one can pluck you out of his hand. Are you going to trust your control or God's control? Are you going to take the path of fear and isolation and be in your ice castle on the North Mountain? Or are you going to let God's love melt all the fear and isolation in your heart and bring new life and freedom and assurance and oneness with God. The incredible thing is that your Heavenly Father gives you that choice. May each one of us choose wisely. Behold what manner of love the Father has shown us that we should be called the children of God sons of God. We talked about that moment, the moment of holding that precious little baby and all the potential, the potential for greatness, the potential for pain. As parents, we are not in control, but yet we embrace that child with all the love in our hearts. Nourish, nurture, and, and cherish that child. And though it may bring heartache, there is great, great fulfillment and encouragement. This world may shun and step away and miss the joy of fatherhood not embrace because they are afraid of the pain, but they miss out learning the father heart. You wonder, how can I be safe embracing things that might cause me pain? Why am I not safer locked up in that icy castle of isolation where I'm in control? I remember the passage in Ezekiel where the water proceeds from the throne of God. And at first it's just ankle deep and then thigh deep and, and then it grows to be over your head and, and carrying great ships. But there's one part that never gets healed or cleansed and that's the marshes. The marshes that have an inlet but no outlet. Those that choose to be selfish, to hold on to that water, maybe thinking that that keeps it in control. They never have to give. And yet the water becomes putrid and stagnant and cannot have life. The oxygen goes out of it. 
But when we let God's love not only enter our lives, but flow through our lives to wash away all our selfishness, all our pain, it's over our head. We're not in control, and that's a good thing because God's in control. And we are cleansed as we allow God's love flow through us and to bring life and healing to others as well. That's God's beautiful plan for each of our life, that we can all experience the fullness and the assurance of his presence, not just out there, but in here. And I pray that would be the present experience of each one of us. With that, we conclude this morning's service.